All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of the Freedom Ring. I'm Matt Toledo. This is my wife, Teresa. And uh, regardless of the platform you're getting us on today, please like, subscribe, and share. This is a huge episode, not only for us, but mostly for well, anybody. Anybody that uh, has interest in mankind, um, Rumble, BitChute, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Brighton, and more, we're on all of them. Please like, subscribe, and share. Joining us is, uh, or are, attorneys Michael Hamilton, who's pretty much become a friend of the show, um, from Cornerstone Attorney. He's part of the Frontline Doctors legal team. Uh, I think this is his third or fourth visit on the Freedom Ring. And uh, a newcomer is Dan Watkins from Watkins Latovsky Law Firm. And they're, uh, good afternoon, guys. Hey, guys. How are you? Thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, We're going to kind of set the conversation here because there is a lot to talk about. And this is a really serious issue. Um, If you're obviously familiar with COVID, and I'm talking to the audience now, you're familiar with COVID, you may or may not be, because of the media dropping the ball, um, may not be familiar with remdesivir. And we basically have genocide happening in the United States right now. Uh, that's not a play on words either, once these two gentlemen um, elaborate. But they're, they're representing numerous plaintiffs right now out in uh, Fresno, California, whose loved ones have been basically murdered by medical professionals by use of remdesivir. And uh, we'll get into the nuts and bolts of everything in just a second, but I just wanted to cover quickly the lawsuit is against Clovis Community Medical Center, St. Agnes Medical Center, and multiple doctors in Fresno County, California for wrongful death, constructive fraud, violation of the Elder Abuse and uh, Dependent Adult Civil Protection Act, um, medical negligence and battery. There's also financial incentives for these medical facilities that I want to get into in hospitals. That I, I really want to highlight that because it's twisted and beyond evil that of what some of these medical professionals, I say that with air quotes, are doing. This landmark case alleges that plaintiffs were subjected to medical deception and given a protocol by the defendants of which is the poisonous and healthy, uh, I'm sorry, healthy, deadly drug, remdesivir. But uh, is the other name, is, is it Veclury? Veclury. Veclury. Yes. And that's another name for remdesivir. So Veclury or remdesivir, if you're not familiar with this, get familiar with it. You're about to become familiar with it, uh, courtesy of these two gentlemen. Plaintiffs were not properly informed regarding the dangers of this drug and were instead placed on a protocol which was medically unnecessary, causing most of the plaintiffs to die. On November 20th of 2020, the World Health Organization announced their recommendation based on data collected from over 7,000 patients against the use of remdesivir, against in COVID-19 patients, regardless of disease severity, as there is currently no evidence whatsoever that remdesivir improved survival and other outcomes in these patients. Nevertheless, the drug was forced on the deceased without their consent as part of the protocol which took their lives. You are not hearing the mainstream talk about this, which is a travesty. These two gentlemen are out in California right now, duking it out. And uh, I guess we should probably lead with their givesendgo.com page because they're needing some funding uh, to help with these legal battles. GiveSendGo.com slash Fresno Remdesivir death. We'll repeat that at the end of the interview. 
guys, take it from there. There's so much to add. I just wanted to make sure that anyone right off the bat is hearing what is what what what, what you guys are doing. So go ahead and t- talk about the financial incentives, which is so twisted. I want to talk about your um, uh, the I believe she was a nurse in Kentucky, Michael. You know who yeah. I'm talking about. Uh, there's so much we can tackle in the next 20, 25 minutes. Just take it and run. So before we get into the the lawsuit itself, Matt, let me talk just a little bit. And Matt and Teresa, thank you, by the way, for having us on the show. Of course. And for us raise awareness and get the word out. Let me just share a couple things about remdesivir and the protocol as I've been seeing it around the country in multiple states, multiple patients. Remdesivir was tested in some Ebola trials, a trial that's been published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was causing death in 53.1% of the people that it was given to, so they pulled it from that study. Now, the CDC and the NIH were some of the funding partners of that study, so they were aware. It was pulled from the study, considered too toxic to be used to try to treat Ebola, um, a group, a panel of, a panel of folks, including nine people from the NIH, who all had a financial interest in Gilead Sciences, who, that's the maker of the manufacturer of, of Vecleri, commonly known as Remdesivir. Uh, they all had a, they had a financial interest and they were able to get emergency use authorization. They claimed that it was safe and effective although it was killing 53% of the people that it was given to. And it's worth noting that, that COVID has a 99.97% survival rate across all populations. And well, if your right at, mind would even consider this. Yeah, you give something that's been killing over half the people it's been given to, uh, to, uh, to treat a disease that is less deadly than the flu. Right. It makes no sense whatsoever. So. That's remdesivir. I mean, you, you, you already uh, mentioned that the World Health Organization has concluded it shouldn't be given. It does no good uh, to treat COVID-19. Um, there's a medical body in Europe that came to the same conclusion, running their own tests. Yet it's being given. And so we're, we, we have to ask ourselves, why is it being given? The, the families that we're representing were given remdesivir and as part of a protocol and they died. We're representing the family members of the deceased. Mm-hmm. So I want to just talk just briefly about the pill itself, because I've experienced it myself. I can tell the story of a nurse. That's probably a good place to start. A group of nurses in Kentucky called me and said, we have a nurse in the hospital. She's being given remdesivir against her will. Can you help? I immediately sent a letter, and then I drove to the hospital. Now, this nurse was a pediatric nurse for 26 years, in the hospital where they were giving her remdesivir, she got bronchial pneumonia as she did almost every year. And she went in to get fluids and get treated with some antibiotics. They said, um, well, you have COVID pneumonia. And she said, I have pneumonia and I want to be treated for pneumonia. Do not give me remdesivir. And they said, okay, honey, let's just get you hydrated. We'll get some fluids in you. And they hung a bag, not of fluids. They hung a bag of remdesivir. They took away her phone. They took away her 
Oh, she was able to call the nurse. In fact, her door faced the head nurse at the nursing station from a distance of about 10 feet and a red light over her door flashed every time she called for a nurse. No one was allowed to go in her room and there was no response for the entire nine hours that she was on it. The next day, a team came in and they said, well, wow, you're really dehydrated. She said, yeah, I've been asking for water all night. And they said, well, let's get you hydrated, honey. And they gave her another bag of remdesivir. Wow. And another nine hours isolated by herself. At that point, I came to the hospital and I began to ask. She signed a power of attorney. She was my attorney. In fact, I put those documents in the record and I said, look, in her file. And I said, I want to know what she's being given. And they said, oh, it doesn't work that way. When she's discharged, they said, we will give her a printout that shows what she was given while she was here. And I said, no, I, I'm afraid it doesn't work that way. She's an American citizen and she has a right to talk with you about what you're proposed to give her. And she can say, no, I don't want that. Or please give me this. And uh, she doesn't have to just sit here and take whatever you put into her and only know at the end. So they started stonewalling me. Well, let's get this other nurse in here. Let's get this doctor in here. Let's get that doctor. For 13 hours, they stonewalled me inside the hospital. And I waited patiently. But And I firmly but politely repeated our requests. We... We videotaped this dear lady. She was perfectly lucid at that time. Uh, after 13 hours, I finally called the CFO of the hospital to whom I'd sent a letter earlier in the day and said, look, you've got a serious issue going on down here. And if you call me on the telephone, you're, the issue is just going to get worse. You need to get out of your chair and come down here. And about three minutes later, there were four or five security guards surrounding me. And the head nurse said, hey, uh, this this guy's been causing trouble all day. He's been going in and out of this room with no equipment. He's endangering the patient. He's making it impossible for us to do our jobs. And I, I listened to her politely. When she was done, I said, gentlemen, this dear lady is simply lying through her teeth. Nothing that she just said is true. I said, she is giving remdesivir, which is a poisonous drug, my client, against her wishes. And my crime for which they have summoned you to throw me out of the hospital is asking for a list of the medicines that they're pumping into her body. And so I said, we're, we're not going to have a wrestling match here. But as I was saying that I was dialing 911 and I got on the phone with the police and I said, Hey, we have an attempted murder going on up here in this hospital in this particular room. And I need some officers here immediately. Exactly they, what it was. The, um, the, the, I was escorted out of the hospital and, and told that if I ever came back, I'd be arrested for trespassing. The police didn't tell me that this is the, the, the bluster from the hospital. Um, we got four police officers and police sergeant up in that room with the doctor and the nurses. And it was quite a job to get the police to be willing to be in there, sort of to witness it, because they didn't want to get involved. They were like, we don't have medical expertise. We, if the doctors say this is good for her, there's really not much we can do. But they did go in there and they agreed to stop the remdesivir. And I'd have communication with her. They gave her her phone and I was able to talk to her. She said that her doctor told her, now we're going to have to intubate you. And she said, I don't want to be intubated. Like, I just need treatment for my bronchial pneumonia. They said, well, um, I'm afraid that since you didn't get vaccinated, we'll have no choice but to intubate you. They also told her, and this is part of the protocol. They said, if you try to leave against medical advice, your insurance won't cover this and you'll have to pay for the entire stay out of pocket. And that terrified her because she didn't have a lot of money. She agreed to stay. They talked her, sort of bullied and coerced her into getting intubated. And four days later, she passed in there. 
never having received any food or water, simply having been given remdesivir and other drugs and then been intubated. And what we have learned from our experts is that not only did remdesivir kill 53.1% of the people that it was given to in the Ebola trial, but when you add intubation to remdesivir, the mortality rate goes up and it goes up significantly. So this, this basic protocol, someone comes into the hospital. This is what I have seen in other cases. In this case, someone comes into the hospital. They say, well, you have COVID pneumonia. They separate them from their loved ones. They put them into a quote unquote COVID ward. Um, they put a, a machine on their face, a BiPAP oxygen machine. They turn the levels up so high that it's hard for the person to breathe on their own and they become dependent on oxygen. And that's how they lead into intubation. Um, and when they try to take the thing off their face, they often zip tie their hands to the bed rails. Uh, and they have a psychiatrist come in often and say, well, we're diagnosing this person with agitation and they give them morphine or fentanyl or some kind of a sedative. No, defenseless. Which makes it even harder for them to, one, communicate with the outside world, two, to fight the effects of the remdesivir on their bodies. Um, they refuse them food and water and uh, time to death on this protocol on average appears to be about nine days. Some people last a long time and it's really just torture. They can't eat, they can't drink, they can't talk to their loved ones. They just have to lay there in this empty room with their hands strapped down and slowly dying. It's terrible. So is the reason they're intubating is because they put them on the BiPAP machine or are they telling them we're going to intubate you before you're even on a BiPAP? So I think it probably, that, that's part of the protocol that maybe varies a little bit. I will say that, and, and this kind of leads into the uh, financial incentives in California. Now, financial incentives vary from state to state. But here's what happens in California. There are three uh, distinctions of treatment for a COVID-19 patient. You can either treat them as an outpatient, you can give them something that works and send them home, or you treat them inpatient as either a complex or a non-complex um, patient. If they're treated as an outpatient, the average charge rate in California is about $3,200. If you treat them as an inpatient non-complex, the average charge rate is about 111000 and change. In order for them to become a complex patient, to be defined that way, they have to be put in the ICU and or intubated, either or both, turns it into a complex by definition. And now the charge rate goes up to about $450,000. On top of that, the government has incentivized the use of remdesivir as the exclusive remedy in a hospital. You have to use it to the exclusion of all other remedies. And if you do that, uh, you get a 20% you, you receive a code that allows you to get a 20% bump on the entire hospital stay. Bonus so at 150,000, that's another 90,000. So instead of sending someone home at $3,200 with something that works, intubate them, put them in the ICU, give them remdesivir, and suddenly you're able to charge over $500,000 in, in California. And that, that number varies from state to state, but the incentives, the incentives are the same, just the amounts differ. Right. On top of that, Every time they write COVID-19 on a death certificate, the state of California from the original CARES Act, now we don't know, there may be more incentives that we're not aware of, and we'll, we'll look for those in discovery. 
but the state of California gets $147,000 for each death certificate that says COVID on it. So, and this, this all goes back to Anthony Fauci. I mean, if we have to narrow it down to one person, there's a whole group of people involved, but I mean, Fauci's like the, uh, the head honcho behind all this, right? I will say that, and Dan can speak more to the lawsuit part of it, but the, these are, where does the protocol come from? We, this is something that we are, we're, we're dying to learn. We're anxious to learn. Dying is probably not the right word for me to right, use, the, right. we, but we need to find out where it's coming from. Um, you know, my, we know that Fauci has been pushing a lot of things from his position, um, but, but we're looking for proof uh, of where this protocol originated. We certainly need to know that because what I've seen as an attorney in, in multiple states and multiple hospitals is right down to the word track, which recorded doctors talking and, and they say the same things in the same way to pa- to patients and family members around the country. The protocol varies very little. It's very similar. It's, it's remdesivir. It's no food and water. It's hands tied down. It's forcing them onto oxygen until they need more. It's telling them if they leave, their, their insurance is not going to pay for it. Um, and it's putting them a lot of times on drugs that are contraindicated for use with Remdesivir. Now, is the protocol everything that you're, we're talking about today? The protocol is specifically designed for people that don't have the jab, that have said no to the jab. I mean, if I walked in and I said I was vaccinated with the COVID nineteen vax, do I get treated differently than everything we're talking about right here? I, I can answer that, Matt. We at least with respect to the cases that we filed. Most of the patients who became decedents were not vaccinated. There are some that were vaccinated. So it does appear that the protocol is applied across the board. But from the calls that we're getting and the emails that we're receiving, and since we had our press conference, it's into the thousands now, and it's from almost every state you can think of, uh, the protocol remains the same. And we do have both a vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals. There's just a much higher percentage of unvaccinated people that are reporting problems associated with the protocol. And, and, and go ahead. I, I've got one left since we're on the topic right now, the actual procedure. Are the nurses that are administering this, are they accomplices in all of this or are they just following a procedure and a manual? And oh, by the way, they just all happen to be dying but we really have nothing to do with it or are they in on it? Well, that's a great, the question that we're really trying to to get answered is where does the protocol come from? The thing that's really important. And one of the things we're focusing on in the lawsuit is that physicians and healthcare facilities in general have to provide care within what's called the standard of care. And the standard of care is provided. It's what's provided by the reasonably prudent person under similar circumstances. And it changes from patient to patients in some respects, but the most important thing is you need to be fluid. You have to look at the situation and in a, an emergent situation like this, with this pandemic occurring, they needed to stay up on top of what was occurring. What's the best treatment remedies? What's the best you know way to go about it? We know remdesivir is a 53% kill ratio or kill percentage with uh, Ebola patients, but we also know ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine are super efficacious when it comes to treating COVID. So they need to be blending all of this and working with the patients. I and mean, that's not happening. What's happening is there is some protocol, whether it's in written form or not, we're going to try to find out. That's the number one thing we're driving at. 
but is certain is it's coming from somebody up top because doctors are not exercising their own independent judgment when it comes to treating the patients. They're following some guideline from some agency with authority over them. Maybe the authority comes in the form of the financial incentives. Maybe it comes in some other form. I don't know. But that leads to the nurses. And, and I'll tell you, we are working with thousands of healthcare professionals in California who've been fired because of the COVID vaccine mandates and their refusal to take those. And I'll tell you, all of them are amazing, amazing people. So the healthcare providers, the nurses, the physician's assistants that are stuck in the middle with having to administer this, they're not our target. The target is the people who are failing to exercise their own independent judgment in the treatment of patients. The people who are deciding that we're going to override the patient's objection to remdesivir and provide, administer it, notwithstanding that objection. Those are the people we're going after. And see, that's where my question to you comes in, because we've been dealing with um, our daughter's allergic to vaccinations. We found that out the hard way um, because she was injected when she was a baby and had a horrible reaction. Ever since then, I have dealt with anytime I have to fill out any medical forms, whether it's forms for her gymnastics, school sports, anything, I always document on that paper that my signature is just a signature acknowledging that I received this, not that I agree with it. I always state that and I, I, I do the, I cross off stuff, initial and date it. I do not give anybody permission and authority to make any medical decisions on her behalf without me. So I, for years, have always doctored paperwork. And I've never had kickback from it or pushback from it. So my question is, when people are afraid to go in to the hospital, my daughter has health issues. I have asthma. I have stuff going on. We, luckily, we've stayed out of hospital. I pray that we don't get into a car accident. My, my question so is... So we get shoved into a room like this. If we, if somebody needs to go to the hospital for maybe an unrelated issue or so they're not feeling well, what do they need to do to prevent this from happening to where they themselves don't have the right to say no or their family doesn't get notified? What can we present to them to say you are not to do A, B, C, D, E, whatever, sign it and in agreement to, to protect us? to still have their rights like we used to have. I mean, I remember when my grandparents were in the hospital, they didn't do anything without first contacting my uncle who was in charge of, of her, their affairs to get permission to either administer something, do something. What is it we can do to protect ourselves, even just stepping foot into a hospital? It's a difficult situation when the healthcare providers exercise their own judgment over the patients. There's not, I mean, it's, it's a tough situation. So the first thing we're trying to do with this loss, these lawsuits and being on shows like yours and is bring awareness to the community of the problems with remdesivir so that everybody knows, because they're not telling you when you go in there that it's, that there are better medications, there's better ways to treat. They're not getting fully informed consent at all on this by and large. So we're trying to make the public aware that remdesivir is not the drug of choice. You should reject it right out of hand uh, as soon as you get there. And you continue to do that. And then we record it, videotape the objection so that everybody can see and tell them, we're videotaping this conversation. If you get any resistance to your, re your objection to remdesivir, and you'll get it, most of the doctors will give you some kind of snide, snarky comment saying, this is the way we have to do it. It's the only protocol available. You right. start recording and get the evidence 
And if you find out that they're giving remdesivir, get them out of the hospital. Contact an attorney locally, talk to friends, get an advocate for the patient, a nurse, somebody you know. And if it's anybody, if you don't have those people, just go in yourself and demand that the patient be released and that they stop administering the the, the medication. Isn't it a shame that we're talking about hospitals like this? Where, the, where the, These are the places we're supposed to go for safety to, to get ourselves taken care of. And it, it's, you're like, you're walking into uh, your own casket. But you know what we've learned very early on because of our daughter, we've been met with so much resistance because of her health and healthcare and how we have to take care of her because of her allergies, health issues, and problems. Let me tell you, I can't tell you how many times I've been told, well, I, I we've been denied treatment from pediatricians saying, well, we, we vaccinate no matter what. You, you, won't see, you won't see a sick child. Um, I've worked in hospitals. I've had Guillain-Barre when I was seven, so I can't get the flu shot. Do you know how many times I've had a sign saying I refuse the flu shot, had to watch video? Like, I, keep, I mean, it, it's insanity. This is nothing you know, new. I, as an attorney, I'm very reluctant to tell people don't go to the hospital. OK, because I don't want them to follow that advice and end up in a worse situation than they might have otherwise been in. But I don't mind at all telling people don't trust the hospital. I can't tell you how many times hospitals have said to people all around the country, OK, we, we won't give them remdesivir. Five minutes later, the medical records show that they started a bag. Yeah. You can't let your loved one out of your sight conspicuously record everything, as Dan said, you're the only advocate that your loved one is likely to have. And you have to stay with them and fight. And if they say, we, we won't give them remdesivir, you stay there and make sure they don't. But that's, that's the only way. And you just have to continue to fight. It's and not that we don't want to encourage people not, but if we don't have these conversations and put them out there for the masses to see, they're unaware that this is a possibility. Because I'm sure everyone you're defending right now, those those loved ones, had no idea this was around the corner. They thought they were going to the hospital to get treated and to get to made feel better. Hey Matt, one one quick thing I want to I want to point out when it comes to recording, because I assume you're going to have people in all sorts of different states here watching. Every state has a different law with respect to recording conversations, whether you have to have consent or not. But with respect to videotaping and having a phone, that you can do most places. So videotape, hold the phone and identify for everybody you're videotaping the conversation. Oh, yes, that's right. Don't keep a recording device somewhere, you know, snuck away and try and record it without their knowledge. That can right. be known. Yeah. So just pull it out. Let it be known for okay. sure. Okay. Uh, we have just a few more minutes. Sorry, well, I was just going to, if I may, I have an extremely urgent call. I have to step away and let Dan wrap things for us. Mm -hmm. I do want to just ask your listeners, Dan will talk about our gifts and go again, but pray for us. We're in a spiritual battle here. This is, this is good and evil. There's no question about it. Dan and I have faith in our creator. God is bigger than the evil. But I do want to ask your listeners to pray, mm -hmm. to share. It's so important to raise awareness. And to the extent that you're able, please give. These families don't have resources to fund this kind of litigation. And people have been giving generously, five, ten dollars, and we're so thankful for that. And thank thank you both for giving us this opportunity. Not a problem at all. We'll have you on again real soon. Okay, Michael. Thank you. All right. God bless you, brother. And I want to kind of just follow up now with your question about 
what people can do. I think that in terms of bringing awareness, the reason that I got involved in this fight, I've been defending doctors and dentists for my entire career. I'm in my 30th year of practice. And when I started hearing about this stuff, I was just completely blown away. And as the stories continued to come in and the protocol remained the same, very consistent across the country, I realized that this is really part of a coordinated effort. Mm -hmm. Who's coordinating it? I don't know why they're doing it. There's a million reasons you could guess, but it doesn't really matter. What's happening is there is a coordinated effort to run this protocol and it is resulting in good people dying. And I think what has become most prevalent to me, start back with the vaccine mandates and then just the vaccines to kids in general. People's right to choose what they want to do in terms of medical care is being taken away and replaced with some authoritative figure deciding for them. You know, it's a fundamental right to be able to choose what medical treatment you want and don't want, and it's being taken away. And so the thing, I think the number one thing that I would tell all the people that we're talking to is be bold and stand up and demand that your rights be uh, respected and that they be followed and demand that you get to choose your religion. You get to express your religion in opposition to the vaccine and stand true to that. Demand that you get to make a decision in the hospital about what care you want. And there you can go there a little bit more confidently that you're going to be okay. And then like Michael said, have an advocate. If you go in with any kind of symptom or if they start talking about remdesivir or any kind of COVID protocol, have an advocate, start screaming from the mountaintops, no remdesivir, and then you know record what you can Right. to stop it. The idea is to stop the use of remdesivir. And people just need to be bold and take back their rights. We've given them away. And that's, I think, an uphill battle for some. And I hope, hopefully this conversation will encourage people to uh, strengthen themselves and be a little bit more bold, like you said. Be confident in what they're, in what they're expressing. Right, because you need to know this is your life. Whoever's mm-hmm. hearing this or seeing this, this is your life. Don't be intimidated by medical professionals. They're no different than you and They're me. human beings. They make mistakes every single day. Some of them are in on exactly what they're, what's being discussed today. It's crooked, beyond crooked gets. But this is your life. You have, you're an American. You have freedoms. And as I wanted to say, when Michael was telling that story, as soon as that first bag of remdesivir was administered, her freedoms were taken away. Right. This is the United States of America. And And I would just say this to the last little bit of encouragement for folks. When you go into that place and you're feeling intimidated about exercising your rights, you go to God because the creator of you and the patient and the doctors and everybody is behind you and with you. If you bring him into the fight, he will present himself. He will, and he'll be there to strengthen you and give you courage and peace and to stand strong for what you believe in. So I would really, I think that there's just such a need to get God back into all of the things that we care about in our lives and use his power when you go forward. Uh, this is like, a, like I said at the start of the show, a special edition, but every other episode of the Freedom Ring, we started with a moment of faith for exactly the reason that you're talking about. God has been removed from society. God has been removed from the schools everywhere. I don't have to go into all the details because you're obviously aware of it, but that's the very reason that we start every other episode with a moment of faith uh, is to make sure he's front and center. Uh, But I wanted, I knew that we were limited on time today and I wanted to make sure that you guys had the floor as much as possible. The give, send, go to help these guys because they are nowhere near. I know your goal is only like $150,000, but I do, I agree with Alex Jones. It needs to be in the millions. 
and givesendgo.com slash Fresno Remdesivir death. One more time, givesendgo.com slash Fresno Remdesivir death. These guys are absolute troopers. Go ahead. 10 seconds to pitch an intake form. If you have somebody that you know of that went through this protocol and lost someone, we're gathering all the names. We're recruiting attorneys. We're trying to find attorneys. If you're an attorney and your heart's being tugged to do this, even in the slightest, if you're hearing God call you and weigh in, please answer with a yes. Please reach out to us. You can go to my website. It's wl-llp as in paul.com. Go to the contact tab and there's a legal help for remdesivir cases. Hit that and complete the intake form and we'll have wl-llp.com. Go to the contact tab, legal help, remdesivir cases, and we'll get you into the into the group. And if you need that repeated, don't hesitate to drop us an email here at the Freedom Ring. It's freedomringshow at gmail.com. And, we'll and we're going to post it. And everywhere. we'll put you in contact with uh, both Dan and Michael. Um, the mainstream media is not covering any of this. It's obviously that they're in on this whole thing. Um, uh, it, it, this has so many different spokes. And that's a different that's a different episode which we've gotten into with Michael before. Um, we hope to have you back on for updates definitely. just to see how you guys are doing and to again Anything. remind people to pray for you guys and because I know I mean we've been affected by it only because he he was denied his religious exemption and we have pages of forms we had to fill out for that. We were affected that way. Other people are affected by obviously losing loved ones and deaths and mm-hmm. everything, but. Some, in one way or another, so everyone's affected by this, and yeah. it's wrong and it's evil for sure. Hundred yeah. percent. All right, Dan. Thank you so much on behalf of yourself and Michael. Thank you for joining us. Um, whatever you need from us, just reach out. We'll put you on and give updates and whatever we can do and help you with your battle. Um, consider us teammates, okay? We will definitely be in touch, I promise. All right, take care of yourself. Landmark lawsuit from Desivere Death. That is Daniel Watkins and Michael Hamilton on the Freedom Ring. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, guys.